Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you're here. This is the second part of our Mailbag May, a brand new tradition that may not actually become a tradition, but I decided that I would spend the rest of May clearing out the mailbag or at least answering as many of your questions as I could possibly fit into two episodes. Before we get into that, though, a couple of updates. For starters, the music that you're hearing will be the theme music for Strong Songs for not very much longer, maybe just another episode or so, because I will be writing new, original, all-new theme music for this show because we hit our first Patreon goal of 150 backers for the show. Thank you so much to everybody who signed up to back the show on Patreon. Um, I'm really excited to write new theme music for the show. The music that I've been using is a song that I kind of started writing and never finished but created backing tracks for just as a kind of a demo. I had it around and it's kind of a fun, jaunty little tune, so I used it as intro music, but it was not written to be the theme music for Strong Songs, so I'm excited to come up with uh, what that might sound like. Uh, Hopefully I won't spend too long obsessing over it. It seems like the kind of thing that it might be fun to write a theme and then change it, do it in different styles. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, but I'm going to be working on that over the next couple of weeks, and at some point you're going to get a Strong Songs episode that'll have brand new music. I've also made a couple new Patreon goals. Um, If we can get to 200 backers, I will be able to upgrade the hosting uh, service for this podcast podcast, which will help the show in a lot of kind of invisible ways that you might not see, but will be really helpful for me. And if we can get to 250 backers, I will do a bonus episode uh, with an interview with someone. I'm not sure who. I have a few people that I've thought about doing. This isn't really an interview or a conversation show. Obviously, if you've been listening, it's more of a sort of music explainer show, but I thought it might be fun to do some bonus episodes from time to time where I talk to music educators and musicians, maybe not the sort of people you're used to hearing on podcasts, uh, music podcasts, but more the kind of people that you don't hear from, but who I think have interesting things to say. So yeah, 250 backers, and I will have an interesting conversation with someone cool on this podcast feed. You can find out more at patreon.com slash strong songs. And of course, there is a link in the show notes. I have a newsletter that you should sign up for. I'm going to be sending out my next newsletter this week, so you won't have missed it yet if you sign up. And uh, yeah, it's just sort of a collection of music recommendations and my thoughts on various things that I've been doing and my projects, what I've been up to. It's a good time. I send it out about once a month. You can sign up at tinyletter.com slash Kirk Hamilton, and there's also a link for that in the show notes. So sign up for that if you're interested. Thanks so much to everyone who's left a review on the Apple Podcast app or really wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews are very helpful, and they're also very nice to read. It seems like people like the show and that's really nice um it just it means a lot that everyone's been spreading the word the show keeps getting out there and more and more people are finding out about it you know i'm not on a major podcast network i don't have a huge advertising budget so it's really kind of up to you guys to spread the word and it really is cool that you have them speaking of spreading the word someone very cool spread the word about strong songs about a week and a half ago mr lin-manuel miranda himself the composer and writer of hamilton shared the show on his twitter feed and said that he liked it he shared this episode that i did about the song Satisfied from Hamilton, which was just about the coolest thing ever, both just to hear that someone who wrote a piece of music that amazing likes the show, and also because a lot of new people discovered Strong Songs thanks to him sharing it. So hey, if you're out there and you started listening to Strong Songs because you saw it on Lin-Manuel Miranda's Twitter feed, welcome to the show. Um, I'm glad you're listening, and uh, yeah, I hope that you like it. In honor of all of you Hamilton fans listening to the show, I thought it would be fun to do a bonus little Hamilton section right here at the start of this Q&A. So without further ado... Don't worry, I'm not going to rap this time. We're just going to get right into it. 
The first thing I want to talk about is a detail that I shared on the Satisfied episode that I now have a new piece of information about that comes from a very reputable source. So one cool little thing that I noticed, among the many cool little things that I noticed as I was learning these various songs from the first act of Hamilton on piano and seeing all of these interweaving motifs and similarities between the songs, is that when Angelica Schuyler introduces herself to Alexander Hamilton, she sings a, a line that moves along a single note, but at one point it changes. And when it changes, it changes with an interval that is actually the motif that is assigned to her sister Eliza. So that line sounds like this. My name is Angelica Schuyler. So she sings this line that's basically a B flat and then it jumps up to an E flat at one point. It sounds like this. So on the Satisfied episode, I made the observation that those notes, the B-flat to E-flat is a perfect fourth, and the way that she does it on the word Schuyler actually matches up with Eliza's motif. So that kind of makes sense since she is eventually going to introduce Alexander to Eliza. So it's kind of like foreshadowing the fact that actually Eliza is going to marry him. So when he tweeted about the show, Lin-Manuel Miranda actually added a little comment, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, He added about this little detail. He said, she's also emphasizing her last name to him, which she does nowhere else as if to say, are you even in a position to be flirting with a Skylar? It's a flex. I love that and think it's really funny just to imagine that she's kind of like, my name is Angelica Schuyler, dude. Do you even know who you're talking to? My name is Angelica Schuyler. It's not every day that a strong songs analysis gets comment from the actual person who wrote the music, let alone someone as brilliant as Lin-Manuel. So I really just wanted to include that in the show. Thanks for listening, Lin. Among the many cool conversations that unfolded on Twitter about the song and the musical over the last week, uh, one neat one came from listener Jasmine, who observed that at the end of the story of tonight reprise in Hamilton, when Aaron Burr is telling Alexander Hamilton about his lover that he can't fully claim is his, Angelica's theme begins playing yet again in the background because this is a woman that, um, that Aaron Burr loves and can't have, and Angelica, of course, is a woman that Alexander loves and can't have. I thought that was a cool observation because that is accurate, and that is playing in the cello in the right channel if you listen right during this section. Congrats again, Alexander. Smile more. I'll see you on the other side of the war. I will never understand you. If you love this woman, go get her. What are you waiting for? I'll see you on the other side of the war. I'll see you on the other side of the world. So it's that cello over in the right channel that's kind of restating a spread out version of Angelica's theme. It's the same kind of second version that plays during Satisfied. I outlined this all in the Satisfied episode, but it's cool that it would come back in part because this song comes immediately after Satisfied. So it's kind of an echo of the song that came before. And it also sounds a little bit like um, the, the motif that plays throughout Wait For It, which is the next song and is Aaron Burr's big song. There's also kind of an irony to Alexander telling Aaron Burr, go get this woman if you want her, simply because he wasn't exactly able to do that himself. And it's yet another kind of clever parallel between the two men, which this musical does a very good job of doing uh, throughout. Listener Argavan was also wondering about that cello motif and where that motif was happening. So hopefully, Argavan, that is helpful for you as well. Listener Derek wrote in, not with a question, but with a recommendation of a graphic novel by David Mazzuccelli that's called Asterios Polyp. And the reason that he recommended it was because after listening to the analysis of Satisfied and of Hamilton, he wanted to point out something that is sort of similar, but in a different medium. So there are two characters in this graphic novel who meet and fall in love. One is a guy who's an architecture professor, and he's drawn with these very rigid, direct, sort of very structured uh, artistic style. And the woman that he meets is uh, an artist, and so she's drawn in this very 
free-flowing, kind of unbound style. And then they meet, and as they meet, their characters begin to be slightly redrawn to have qualities of both art styles in their characters. And then over the course of the graphic novel, it does a variety of different things with their own personal art styles changing and shifting and sort of decaying and coming back. I think it's a really cool example of how this kind of motific development can be done, even outside of music, and how at times, you know, there's the written text and there's what's happening. And then a lot of great art also does things with, you know, non-written text and non-verbal things like musical cues and motifs or art styles and can tell you a story that way too. So I thought that was a really cool thing. Um, Thanks, Derek, for sending it in. I'll put a link for that graphic novel um, in the show notes. So the last Hamilton question comes from listener Emma, who wants to know, what is your favorite isolated musical element from across the whole musical, Hamilton? So that's a very difficult question to answer, actually. There, you know, listening to this musical as many times as I have, there are a whole lot of little isolated musical moments that I love, especially listening to the Hamilton instrumentals, which I mentioned on that episode. It's a really cool uh, album to listen to if you like Hamilton. It's just the instrumental tracks from the original cast recording, and it really highlights the great orchestration work uh, by Alex Lacamoire, who is the the orchestrator for this, and just how many cool little musical things there are hidden in there. But I would say that one thing that I love is just another little musical Easter egg that I noticed as I was working on this, and that's actually that rhythm that I played at the beginning. It's kind of the defining starting rhythm of Hamilton. It's the very first thing that plays during the musical. It sounds like this. Now, what I love about that is something that I didn't notice until I learned the song My Shot, the sort of iconic song from the beginning of Hamilton. And that's that that rhythm might sound familiar to you for a reason. So basically that introductory drum rhythm, matches the rhythm of not throwing away my shot. So throughout the whole musical, that plays over and over and over again, and it's just yet another small way that Hamilton weaves into and out of itself. That riff is really just... Boom. Very cool. So that'll do it for talking about Hamilton for now, though a lot of people have requested that I talk more about that musical or about musicals in general. So rest assured, this will not be the last time that I talk about a Broadway musical on Strong Songs or even about Hamilton because, like I've said many times, there's so, so much there that I could talk much, much more about that musical because it is really a pretty incredible work. For now, let's move on. Listener Paulina writes in, I have this question about counting stars by One Republic that's bothered me since the first time I heard it. Throughout the song, there are these seemingly random squeaks in the background. After listening to your podcast, I realize it might be the guitar that's making those sounds. How come it bothers me so much? I feel like it takes away from the rest of the song. Well, Paulina, let's listen to that track and specifically to the beginning of the track, which I think is where the squeaking that you're referring to uh, is most audible. Lately, I've been, I've been losing sleep. Dreaming about the things that we could be But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard Said no more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars Yeah, we'll be counting stars So for starters, let me just say that I actually like this song. There's a whole genre of music that sounds kind of like this, like driving acoustic guitar, um, lots of people singing and chanting, lots of sing-along sections. It's sort of the Mumford Band thing. Honestly, I think that this is a good example of that. I just sort of like this song. They really go for it and they deliver and it's uh, it's pretty fun. So to answer Paulina's question, yes, I think that the sound that you're talking about, the squeaking that you're hearing is the guitar. It's a combination of two things. One is just the fingers moving across the guitar. It's a very close mic guitar, meaning the microphone is 
right up next to the guitar strings because he's playing with his fingers and not with a pick at the beginning. And then also there's fret buzz, which is the sound that um, a string makes when you're not quite pressing it correctly or you're like just letting it buzz a little bit against the metal fret, which are sort of the metal bars that go um, vertically across the neck of the guitar to let you kind of decide which note you're playing, you know, that kind of break the guitar neck up. So it's fret buzz and finger squeak, which sounds kind of like this. You can kind of hear that finger squeak in there, right? Did you hear that? There was some buzz right there. some more buzz there. So I was kind of trying consciously to add a little bit of fret buzz, which means actually kind of fingering the the chords incorrectly on the on the guitar or like not incorrectly but just not with perfect technique. It's not a terrible sound, it just sounds a little bit rougher. Actually, if you listen to popular sample libraries that have sampled guitars, they'll add the finger sound and squeaks um, and even some fret noise in there because those sounds are the sounds of a human being playing an instrument and those are nice sounds. You know, it's all part of the sound of the guitar. It's not just the pure notes. That said, it's actually kind of weirdly hard to consciously add them for an example like I was trying to add fret buzz and finger squeak for that example and um, it's sort of weirdly difficult to do it on purpose even though I you know don't have great guitar technique and have fret buzz plenty of times when I'm playing I think that um, the string squeak the finger squeak that's kind of from when your fingers touch the string and pick up off of it and move around and that is much more pronounced when the strings are very new and I don't have super new strings on my acoustic guitar so maybe in that recording session they did have new strings on the guitar and that was part of it it is one of those things that's kind of hard to unhear once you've heard it, but it's also something that is just part of playing an acoustic guitar, so it'll be on a lot of recordings that you'll hear. So hopefully, Paulina, as you kind of get your head around what it is, you can then just kind of let it fade into the background and just become another part of the acoustic guitar's sound. Our next question comes from David about the song The Third Eye by the Pillows. He wants to know why does the intro to the song, specifically the moment after the band jumps in after the lone guitar and the first couple bars thereafter, sound so weird but at the same time work perfectly in my ear? It feels like they're off but clearly they're not and it manages to blow me away every time. Well, David, let's listen to the beginning of The Third Eye by The Pillows. Right, David. So what's going on here is a classic move, a classic sort of rhythmic misdirection that a lot of bands and artists do at the beginning of their songs. That's actually something that Beyonce did at the beginning of Single Ladies, and I talked about this some in that episode as well, but this is a very common trick. Basically what they're doing is playing a rhythm that does not start on the downbeat. It starts on the upbeat, and so it all comes down to how you hear this riff. So it would be completely understandable to hear that like it's starting on the downbeat, which would mean it is ba ba da ba da da one two three four like that's the beat. And if you're counting it that way, when the band comes in, you're going to be thrown for a loop because you're hearing ba da 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 da. But the band comes in. So the key is you need to just change your frame of reference. For whatever reason, I actually heard this the way that they're actually counting it the first time, which I think is due to the way that the guitar player is accenting the second note. It just sounded to me like a riff that would have the downbeat be the second note. And that's what's going on, is the second note is the downbeat. So instead of ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, what's actually going on is 
So if you can get that in your head, which is pretty easy to do because the rest of the song, you know, when the band is in, the whole groove is built around it um, with that pickup note and then the downbeat on the second note. So just get your head around that and then just practice rewinding and listening to the beginning and counting the downbeat on that second note. And then you'll get it into your ear eventually. It's kind of a cool trick, though. I like when bands do this. I like this kind of a fake out intro just because it starts people off a little bit tripped up and makes people pay attention. Our next question comes from Jason, who asks, can you give my daughter Sophia advice to get past her shyness and stage fright and sing in front of people other than me? She's 11 and has great natural pitch. Uh, Sure, Jason, I can take a crack at this. Um, I haven't worked with that many kids that age. I mostly taught high school kids, but I definitely know a thing or two about stage fright and singing in front of people. My main advice is, first off, like, don't push it if she isn't comfortable singing in front of people. That's fine. She can just sing for you, too. Singing is a very vulnerable thing to do in front of people. You don't have an instrument to hide behind. You know, you have to look at people and just sing. And that is a hard thing to do. It's not something that anyone can do comfortably. And if you're really young, it's especially kind of scary to get up in front of people. There are definitely kids that I've known and seen who have no compunctions about getting up and just singing in front of people and belting it out. But that is kind of unusual and it's definitely pretty common to be shy. So it's totally normal. If Sophia doesn't want to sing in front of people, that might be fine. That said, singing in front of people is also really, really fun. And she might love doing it if she can just get over that initial hump, which I also totally understand. So my main advice would be think about a choir or some kind of an ensemble that she could join. Um, When you're singing in front of people, it can really be helpful to start by singing with others, partly just because singing in harmony and singing in a choir is just a great way to learn to become a better singer, learn how to blend, um, learn from other people's voices and like things that you maybe didn't know that your own voice could do. But also getting over that initial hump is a lot easier when you're with other people and when you're singing as part of an ensemble. And it isn't like your solo voice out there all alone in front of people, which is very stressful. So my first advice would probably be to do that, to join some sort of a choir. She also might have a good time doing musical theater or doing some sort of more performance, uh, character-based dramatic singing, because that can also be a really fun way to sing in front of people if you're playing a character. It lets you get outside of your own head a little bit and sing in someone else's voice, which can remove some of the stress of, you know, how exposed you feel when you're singing by yourself in front of people, if you're kind of hiding yourself a little bit by playing a character. So it could be that she would like getting into musical theater or finding some kids to do something like that with. So I hope that advice is helpful, and uh, I wish Sophia good luck on the long musical journey that is ahead of her. Our next question comes from Angus, who writes, Would you agree that Lydian is the happiest of the major scale modes? He also mentions that their small community has a wonderful piano teacher named Lydia, and that he wonders whether she is named that because she has three older siblings, or if it is because her birth made her parents very happy. So I want to explain to everybody why Angus would theorize that her having three older siblings would also result in her being named Lydia. And in order to do that, hey man, we've explained scales, we've explained chords, you might as well explain what a mode is, just very quickly. So remember we did the C major scale, Okay, C major scale sounds like this. Cool. So that goes from C to C. That's one octave. Starts on a C, ends on the other C. From C to shining C. What if we played those same notes, same scale, but we started it on a D on the second note and treated it like a D scale in the key of C major? That would sound like this. Okay, so that's a different scale. It's like a type of a D minor scale, going D up to D, but in the key of C. What that's also known as is a mode of C major. So there are seven different notes in each major scale, which means that if you start that major scale on one of those notes, you get a different mode. So there are seven modes of the major scale. I don't want to spend too long on this. This is like pretty deep theory weed stuff, but basically there are seven modes and they have pretty cool Greek names. So there are seven of these. You start on the one, which is just a major scale. That's called Ioni. 
Dorian. Sounds like a major scale. Then there's the one we just did, which starts on the second degree of the scale. That's called Dorian. Then you have Phrygian, which starts from the third. Then Lydian, which starts from the fourth, and that's the one that Angus is asking about. Then you have Mixolydian, starts on the fifth. Aeolian starts on the sixth. And Locrian starts on the seventh. Now, all of those scales may sound very different, but they all actually are made up of the same notes. It's a C major scale. You're just starting it in different places. So basically, that's what a mode of a major scale is, or really what the mode of any scale is. You can take a minor scale too, have modes of a minor scale, and you just start, you play those same notes from the scale, just starting on a different degree of the scale and treating that as the starting point. So to Angus's question, first question is, would you agree that Lydian is the happiest of the major scale modes? I don't know about the word happy, but I would definitely say it is the brightest of the scale modes. So Lydian, if you remember, is the fourth mode, and that is basically a major scale, but it has a sharp four. So it's like a major chord, which is already pretty bright, and then it's even brighter because the fourth scale degree is higher than it would be if it were normal major. Lydian is an iconic sound. It's something that you've definitely heard in movies and lots of movie soundtracks. It's like the open adventure, wide open world, things are gonna go well sound. And uh, it sounds like this. So the heart of that sound is the dissonance between the five and the sharp four, which is just a half step. In this case, we're playing an F, so it's a C and a B. Um, it's this little rub. That rub is just like a, it's like a dissonance actually that makes Lydian sound so bright and kind of jangly. And it doesn't have to sound that optimistic. Obviously I've got the pedal down and I'm playing a very, you know, hopeful melody, but you can play pretty jangly stuff. It can be very crunchy. I think on guitar, Lydian can sound very dissonant and kind of intense. One very famous example of a melody that strongly uses Lydian is this melody. That's right, Danny Elfman's theme for The Simpsons is like a case study in how to use Linian, and it's that sharp four that gives it that jangly, kind of manic, ultra sunny day quality. But basically, to answer your question, Angus, um, I don't think that it's the happiest, but I do think that it's the brightest. And to Angus's joke, the reason he made that joke is if Lydia were the fourth child, Lydian is the fourth mode of the major scale. So you would imagine that maybe her three older sisters would be named Ionia, Doria, and Phrygia, and then Lydia would be born fourth. She would be the brightest brightest and jangliest of their children. That would be clever, and if anyone has ever named their kids that way, I'd love to hear about it. Next question comes from Hugh, who wants to know what is going on in the snarky puppy song Something from Family Dinner Volume 1. At around 610, it sounds like the singer Layla Hathaway is singing multiple notes at once. Well, let's listen. So Hugh, you are correct. You're exactly right. She is singing um, two notes at the same time, which sounds pretty awesome. Also sounding pretty awesome, Layla Hathaway in general. Holy cow, she's amazing. Um, so that is really hard to do. The way that she's singing two notes at once is different than the sort of Tuvan throat singing and the other uh, sort of Eastern Asian types of uh, multiphonic singing, which you'll also hear. Um, and I think we talked about on a previous uh, listener Q&A episode, I believe. But yeah, a multiphonic, as it's called, is basically when you are able to make something that typically only vibrates at a single frequency 
alternate between two separate frequencies. The place that I'm actually most familiar with it is in saxophone playing because multiphonics on saxophone are actually possible to get. You'll hear it actually beginning saxophone players a lot of times. They'll blow in a way that's so unformed that the reed will bounce back and forth between two frequencies and you'll get what's a kind of a gnarly split sound, but it actually sounds like a multiphonic. Um, here, I'm gonna get out my tenor saxophone. I'm gonna play you guys a couple of multiphonics. Uh, this is a kind of a lower one that sounds sort of eerie and otherworldly. <laughs> Here's another really weird low one that's kind of in that same register and is equally strange. I really like the one that comes out on a high G on tenor saxophone. It's very delicate and has a kind of a nice mix of overtones all sounding at the same time. Also up there, there's the high A, which you can kind of pop and almost get this train whistle sound that I think a lot of pop and rock sax players, it's a pretty, it's a pretty killer sound. So, you know, if you want to rock it, you can play something like this. So the way you'll do that on saxophone, there's a variety of different ways to do it, but one of them is you'll finger the, the do the fingering for the note, and then you'll kind of pick up the most middle key, and that kind of splits the note and causes the saxophone to not exactly know what to do physically with the, the resonance that's coming in off of the mouthpiece and the reed. So if you can really then relax everything about your throat, the horn will just start to kind of magically bounce between a variety of notes. And you can hear when you're listening to this, you can hear me kind of isolating one and trying to hold on to it while I get another one out. It requires you to be very relaxed and have a lot of control. Now vocally it's a little bit different, right? Because you're not fingering notes so you can't just pick up the middle one to help you along. You've got to do the whole thing with your vocal cords. However, listening to Layla Hathaway, this is not something that I can do, the style of multiphonic that she's singing, but just based on the way that she's singing it, she's totally backing off. She's relaxed everything about her vocal cords and she's not singing loudly. It's this one specific sound that she can do. Where she kind of pushes it and in her breathy voice is allowing an upper overtone to ring out at the same time as a lower note. So whenever she does the multiphonic, it's a very specific, very open kind of thing that she's doing. And then she gets back to singing single notes and her sound becomes much more focused. So I don't think it's the exact same as on saxophone, but I do think that some of the mechanics are working similarly. Speaking of people doing amazing things with their voices, Brian writes with a question about Mariah Carey's emotions. At the 245 mark, he writes, she is singing and just keeps going higher. Is that her natural voice? Is that a synth? Is it modulated? If that's just her singing, that is unreal. Well, Brian, let's listen to it and see what we think. So Brian, to answer your question, no man, she's just singing that. Mariah Carey is actually very famous for that register, which I believe is called whistle register. And she's one of the few singers who can go that high. But that's like, that's a high C that she hits at the end there. I don't even know what C that is. That's almost off the piano. It's That's a ridiculous note. So I cannot sing whistle register. The only person I've ever seen do it live is an amazing, amazing guitarist singer named Raul Midon, who I saw in Miami. 
Um, he can sing whistle register as well. It sort of involves this weird, almost squeak that you make by like really tightly compressing your vocal cords and almost just doing something that isn't quite singing. But when Mariah does it on that recording, she's singing. I mean, she has control over it and she brings it down in a really kind of light and beautiful way. She also does whistle register at the end of this song in a really cool way too. That's what I always think of. I remember the first time I heard this, you know, whenever this song came out, um, just thinking, what the, how is that happening? Um, and yeah, she's just singing it. So as I become an older and older man, and I realize that there are actually probably more and more people out there who aren't super familiar with Mariah Carey, despite knowing her songs, but Mariah Carey was a vocal freak of nature. She was a more technically capable and just gifted, I think just naturally gifted singer than almost anybody else. There are singers that I like better, but in terms of just ability to sing things, uh, Mariah Carey was on a different level. And you get things like those super high notes, which honestly to me are as much like almost a freak show thing, like showing off just this freaky, amazing thing you can do. It almost goes beyond music and becomes like watching a contortionist act or something. Like it's amazing. It's just amazing in a kind of a different way. Andrew writes in and asks, I was wondering if you could explain the difference between a synthesizer, a sequencer, and a sampler, and the different things you might use each one for. Sure, Andrew, that is a distinction worth making, and I think people kind of use those words a lot. All three begin with S, and it is kind of easy to mix them up, though they are all three very different things. A synthesizer is an electronic instrument, usually looks like a keyboard. Um, It kind of rose to prominence in the 70s and 80s in pop music. People use synthesizers all the time today. There are retro synthesizers that are very expensive, that are kind of the original electronic instruments. Now on a computer, you can just buy synth kits or virtual synthesizers that give you all the tools and knobs and sort of parameters you can adjust on the synthesizer, but they're totally digital. Those are much less expensive. But an actual synthesizer is a big electronic piece of equipment with a keyboard, you know, a music keyboard attached to it. So synthesizer, it could just sound like a synth like this. Or it could sound totally weird and sound like this. Those are both being played by a virtual synthesizer that I own called Massive. It's made by Native Instruments. It's a really, really good synth tool, and there are a million digital knobs on it that let you make just all kinds of wild sounds on it. Um, And that's kind of synthesizers. I mean, synthesizers cover a huge range of sounds and styles of music. You can use synthesizers for anything, but that's basically what a synthesizer is. When you picture a keyboard with sort of a wall of knobs and patch cables behind it, um, that is a synthesizer. Now, a sequencer is is more something that's used to establish a sequence of events. So that's a good way to remember what it is. Um, a sequencer is something you can program to then play a sequence over and over and over again. A lot of times people use a drum sequencer um, to create a sequence of drum beats that then plays over and over again. You know, the sequence will be every drum beat within a bar, you know, maybe something like this.
and then you plug that into the sequencer and then that just plays the sequence so it'll you know you can kind of individually edit each part of the sequence and have it play over and over again or kind of change up the pattern so the sequencer just deals with the subdivision of time it usually gives you like four bars and you can just assign which sounds on the sequencer are going to play at which point in the bar and then you just press play and it begins to play the sequence over and over again and that's kind of what a sequencer does it's not so much about the sounds it's making it's about the sequence of events that you're programming into it last one is the sampler a sampler is a software instrument that uses recordings of actual live acoustic instruments and then turns them into samples that then can be played on a piano keyboard in order to recreate that sound without having to actually have those instruments in the recording studio so the sampler that i use is one i recently got called contact also made by native instruments it's a really widely used sampler it's really good i think um, and it has what's called a sample library which is a library of audio files that are specially recorded so that they can be recreated on um, somebody by somebody playing on a you know a keyboard and you can still tweak so many parameters of the sound to get a kind of human believable performance out of it so whenever you hear me playing piano on strong songs i am not playing an acoustic piano that i have in my studio i'm actually playing the contact grand piano which was sampled off of i believe it's a steinway grand piano in a hall and uh, it's a really great sample library of a piano when you hear me playing upright bass or marimba those are also sampled instruments. So those are the three things, and that's the difference between the three. I hope that makes sense. A synthesizer creates its own sounds. It's an electronic instrument, and you adjust the knobs and the oscillators and the waveforms so that you make a sound that you want it to sound like. But it is an instrument, and it creates its own distinct sound. A sequencer just allows you to assign whatever digital sounds you have to a certain place in a measure and create a sequence of events that you then press play, and it plays over and over again and a sampler takes pre-recorded instruments that are recorded in a special way with special wave files that allow you to manipulate them using a digital keyboard but um, a, you could actually sample a synthesizer I guess and there is a lot of overlap between these things you can buy things that do sequencing and are also a sampler and also have a built-in digital synthesizer or an analog synthesizer um, there's a lot of crossover between the three but that's basically the difference between the three I hope that makes sense Next question comes from Tanny, who writes, I have a question about a recent Hosier song, Movement. It's a banging song, but why does the chord progression from the pre-chorus to the chorus sound so strange? The first time I heard it, I thought it was a mistake. What's going on musically? Why did it sound so unnatural at first? And after a few dozen listens, why does it sound okay now? Well, Tanny, let's find out. Let's go and listen to the Hosier song, Movement, and the section in question. Thing is, we can't listen to the section in question on its own. We have to listen to a little bit of the song first to understand um, why the chorus sticks out. So here's a little bit of the verse of this song just to get a sense of what it sounds like before the chorus. You are the right of movement It's reasoning made lucid and cool I know it's no improvement When you move, I so there's a lot of different chords there, but the key center is generally C-sharp minor. So this song is, the verse is basically in C-sharp minor. Now here's what happens on the chorus that Tani is writing in to ask about. So 
So what's happening there that's actually really cool is he's switching to C-sharp major for the chorus. So he's in a really strong C-sharp minor tonality in the verse, and then he just goes to what's called the parallel major. He goes to C-sharp major, and it emphasizes it because the second chord is actually over the major third. So that, that second note is an F, which is the major third of C-sharp, sort of emphasizes the, the major uh, sound of that chord. So those first four chords, which are actually, I think, really cool. This is a cool song. Um, in the chorus, it goes C-sharp major, C-sharp major over F, F-sharp minor, which is actually that four minor, and then A, which is a pretty sweet uh, quartet of chords. Definitely a cool way to jar your listener is to really strongly establish a minor tonality and then go to a major tonality on the chorus, or vice versa, you know, major tonality and minor tonality on the chorus. Our next question comes from Nick, who asks, how does a guitar talk box work? I was listening to the song Show Me the Way by Peter Frampton, and it got me curious. Um, all right, Nick, I am not a talk box expert. I actually haven't ever used one. I've seen people use them. Um, I think I understand the general gist, so I'm going to explain this as best I can. Uh, so first of all, here's the example Nick is talking about. This is Peter Frampton, who became famous for using the talk box, playing a guitar solo using the talk box on his song Show Me the Way. probably seen a guitar player using a talk box before. What it looks like is a sort of weird rubber hose attached to the guitar player's microphone stand, and then they'll put it in their mouth and kind of sing while they play guitar, and it makes a sound like that. Um, it's kind of an interesting and and very low tech kind of a kind of an effects pedal, which I think is actually really cool. Basically, what's happening is the pedal your guitar plugs into the pedal. The pedal outputs your guitar signal along that hose and into your mouth, and then you use your mouth like a resonator to affect how the sound comes out back into the microphone. So uh, that's kind of how it works. And like I said, I haven't used one, but that's my basic understanding, which is pretty low tech, and I actually think really cool. You're sort of turning your a part of your body, you know, your mouth into a resonator for your guitar's tone, and then that kind of combines with the electric guitar, the sound that you're getting through your amp, and um, just the PA, the public address system where you're playing the show, and um, and it comes out sounding like your voice mixed with a guitar, which is pretty cool. Matt writes, in Tina Turner's Nutbush City Limits, there's an electronic wailing sound starting at about a minute and 38 seconds in. What is that? Well, that's a good question, Matt. Let's listen to Tina Turner's Nutbush City Limits. Well, this is a pretty easy one. That is a synthesizer of some sort. And there's one dead giveaway that, um, you know, when I'm trying to figure out what instrument is playing, the second I heard it, I knew what this was. So I'll let you in on that. And then the next time you hear it, you'll know you're hearing some sort of a synth or a keyboard. So the thing you want to keep an ear out for is the sound of the pitch wheel. The pitch wheel is a little knob that's to the left of the piano keyboard of the black and white piano notes on any synth, any electronic synth, any electronic keyboard you get is probably going to have a pitch wheel. And you can kind of turn the pitch wheel up and down. You can kind of rock it in a cradle and it causes the keyboard note to move up and down. You can define the parameters so it could like jump a whole octave when you slide it up or it could just move up a step. And uh, it sounds like this. 
It has this kind of an unnatural smoothness to it where the pitch just bends kind of magically almost, and it doesn't really sound like anything else. So when a keyboard player starts going in on the pitch wheel, it's a way that a, a keyboard player can be much more expressive and kind of mimic the sorts of scoops and dives that horn players will do using their wind and their embouchure or that guitar players will do by bending strings and, you know, sliding around. It's definitely a way that um, like kind of funk and rock keyboard solos can be more expressive and have that kind of wailing vibrato that you expect in a guitar solo or a horn solo. And so it's definitely what the keyboard player is doing here. If you listen, it, it comes in really heavy with the pitch wheel right at the beginning. And also just moreover, you're never going to hear that kind of a completely unblemished, pure and perfect tone from anything that isn't some sort of an electronic instrument. So a synthesizer is your safest bet. I guess it could also be something like a theremin or a tannerin, which we've learned about on previous episodes. But, you know, it's a synthesizer. It's somebody playing a keyboard solo there on that track. Also, how good is Tina Turner? I haven't listened to that tune in forever, and it was really fun to go listen to it again. She rocks, man. Next question comes from John, who writes, I'm a guitar pedal builder, and I've been working on a circuit to get the sound from the BC Boys' Shake Your Rump from Paul's Boutique. It's at about the 42nd mark. My best guess is that they found a sustained Moog note on vinyl and then scratched it for the take, but I am stumped. All right, John, I listened to this. I'm not totally sure I have a great answer for you, but let's just listen to it and, uh, and see what we hear. sound anyway man man that sounds great um john i can understand why we'd want to build a pedal uh that makes that sound i'm not totally sure i have a solid answer my listening to that it does sound a little bit like a moog that's a moog synthesizer to anyone who doesn't know it's the one that's spelled m-o-o-g and a lot of people call it a moog um it sounds kind of like a moog which a lot of people use for basses maybe yeah run through some sort of distortion or something it could be some kind of a bass pedal like a bass synth pedal or something like that but it sounds a little like a keyboard sound so i'm not totally sure i have an answer but i will throw it out to listeners listeners if you have any theories on what that might be what kind of a bass synth it is they're using or if you know uh let me know strongsongspodcast at gmail.com next question comes from liz this is an interesting one she writes i was just wondering what are the songs that are hardest to sing technically but seem easy and vice versa i was thinking about this listening to harry nielsen without you while realizing that the verse with the long phrases and jumps is probably a lot harder to sing than the high chorus although it seems on a first listen to be the other way around this is an interesting question. Um, I have some thoughts on it, but it's like a big question. Let's just listen to the example that Liz cited, that Harry Nielsen song, Without You. And uh, there's a little bit of the verse and a little bit of the chorus, just for reference. I can't forget tomorrow When I think of all my sorrow When I had you there But then I let you go And now it's only fair that I Okay, so that's the verse. Really nice verse. Let's listen to the little bit of the chorus. This is what she's talking about with the high chorus. This is kind of the dramatic high part of the chorus. So Liz's question is, 
are there songs that are hard to sing technically but seem easy and vice versa? And I think this is an interesting question because it's so open to interpretation and that's partly because of the question of what makes a song easy or hard to sing. Now I've been singing my own songs for years. I am not a master technician, though for the last year or so I've been taking really serious voice lessons with a wonderful voice teacher here in Portland, which has been great by the way. Um, any of you out there who like singing or always wanted to sing, really recommend taking voice lessons. Uh, just find a regular teacher, do it. It'll cost a little bit of money, but it's worth the investment. Very, very fun. Okay, PSA over. Now Liz's question gets at something that I think is interesting about singing, and that is the, the many ways that a song can be hard to sing. Um, and that's partly because singing is more than a lot of other uh, instruments that you can play. It's kind of like a physical pursuit, and learning how to sing is as much like strength training and kind of an athletic pursuit as it is an artistic one and just a technical one. Because you're kind of training your muscles and you're training your body in a way that you do do when you're playing any instrument, but it's just very different when the whole instrument is yourself. So the result of that is that sometimes a song is hard because it's just physically grueling and your voice gets really tired. So in that sense, um, singing along with this Harry Nielsen song, um, the chorus is harder than the verse because, you know, he gets up to those G sharps and A's and he's kind of yelling out these high A's. If you do that over and over and over again, you know, if he had to do three shows in a night and sing that song over and over again, his voice would get really tired. So in that respect, that is the hardest part of that song. However, I think that the verses are difficult, just they're difficult in a different way. He's singing more in his mix. He's singing really beautifully. And what he's doing with his voice is he's kind of stretching it up into his really light mix on those higher notes and coming down a little more solidly in the lower notes. And there's a lot of really good vocal technique happening. And I would say that it demonstrates more vocal mastery. Like he's showing off more cool things and making more beautiful sounds on the verses, despite the fact that they're not as physically taxing. They're still artistic and even sort of, you know, dexterously uh, demanding those verses. It kind of gets back to what I talked about in the Bohemian Rhapsody episode, talking about Freddie Mercury singing, where when Freddie is singing those really high notes, you know, notes like the G sharp and A and B, notes that are really high rock notes for, for a male voice, it's impressive. I mean, he can wail up there and he sounds great, but his most impressive and beautiful singing is really kind of a little bit lower in the Fs and the Es and the Ds, right in that mix and the kind of break point for the male voice, which is usually where, if you're really good singer, um, you can show off how much control you have because you can just sing right through your break and you don't get hung up and you just have this beautiful mix right through there. So it's uh, kind of all a matter of what you consider challenging. Like the way that Harry Nielsen navigates his break in the verse is actually really challenging and impressive. It's just not physically as demanding as what he's doing on the chorus. So that's just one you know vector of this conversation and the question of what makes a song hard or easy to sing you know, is, is a whole lot more than just range and technique. Um, and there are a million different examples of all kinds of things here. So it's a very, very interesting and very big question that Liz has raised, but I do think that it's an interesting one. Our next question comes from Jefferson, who writes, why are fugues and songs sung in the round so much fun to listen to? He cites a couple of examples, Fleet Fox's White Winter Hymnal and a band called Anathalo's Fugue 24. So I went and listened to both of these examples. I knew the Fleet Fox's song. I did not know the Anathalo song. And it actually, they both provided kind of an interesting insight into answering Jefferson's question. 
So for starters, a song sung in the round is like row, row, row your boat. It's when one person starts singing, and then when they get to the next phrase, the next person starts singing, but at the beginning, and then when they get to the second phrase, the first person is on the third phrase, and then a third person starts on the first phrase, and soon everybody's singing the song, but in a different place. But because the song has been written in a certain way, um, all of the melodies sort of still fit together, and it doesn't just sound like a bunch of people started the song incorrectly. Now, a fugue is a little bit different. We don't have to get into the technical definition. A fugue is basically where there are independent lines moving at all times in counterpoint to one another, and there are times where it works kind of like a song in the round, like the first voice will introduce um, you know, the, the motif, and then the second line will come in and echo it a certain number of bars in, and then the third line will come in, same as a song in the round. But fugues are also much more complicated in the way that they're written, and you know, they're composed. They, they get really complicated, and we don't need to get too technical or too into that. So for a song in the round, I actually listened to this Fleet Foxes song, and it's a song that a lot of you probably know. It's not actually really a song in the round. It has an echo at the very beginning where, you know, the backup, the harmony part echoes the chorus, but then everybody just sings at the same time. It just has some really lovely vocal harmonies. However, a really good example of a pop song sung in the round, that's my favorite example anyways, is the Beach Boys' God Only Knows from Pet Sounds, which I think was one of the first times anyone had ever really done this. So this is the part I'm talking about from God Only Knows. This is a really cool example of singing in the round. And God only knows what I'd be without God only knows what I'd be without God only knows what I'd be without Man, true story. Every time I play a Beach Boys song on a QA, I'm like, when am I going to do a Beach Boys episode of this show? That really needs to happen. Um, that song is so good. Before we get into more about why rounds sound so cool or fugues sound so cool, let's listen to Jefferson's other example, which is the band called Anathalo. And it's a song called Fugue 24. I'd never heard this band. They're awesome. And this track is awesome. So check this out. <laughs> So very cool, right? There are other examples I could cite. Um, there's a Wolfpack tune called Fugue State that's pretty fun that I heard recently. Um, but the question, and Jefferson's question, is why is it so fun to listen to music like this? Which basically means why is it so engaging to our ear when there's a song that establishes a melody and then spreads that melody out rhythmically in a variety of different places. And I think the answer is really just that that variety and familiarity kind of working together make it possible for us to kind of hear the full spectrum of what's happening in a way that we wouldn't necessarily if everybody was playing something different. Like it's cool to listen to free jazz where everybody is improvising at the same time and maybe kind of listening to one another, but there's no set melody or like a John Zorn thing like Cobra, some kind of big avant-garde group improvisation. That can be fun to listen to, but it's not engaging in quite the same way as a fugue or a song in the round because because what a song in the round does in particular is it sort of establishes the melody and it gives you one um, sort of oral focal point to listen to, but then it introduces another one. But you know what the second line is going to be doing because you're already listening to the first one. So then suddenly you're kind of listening to two things at the same time, but they're not two different things at the same time. You're not trying to process two totally different things. You're just listening to the same thing placed in two different places along that x-axis, along the x-axis of time. So then a third voice comes in and then you're hearing three at the same time. And 
and it kind of feels like your brain is expanding as you're as you're making yourself listen to all of this stuff at the same time, like you're kind of focusing on multiple lines. And I think that that's a really engaging thing for a brain to do. Music can do so many cool things to the ways that we think, and because so much music focuses just on a single melody, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when we hear someone begin to do something in the round, I think it lights up a part of our brain that's really cool, and I wish more people would do that in their songs. Kevin writes, can you please tell me what is happening in the beginning of Baba O'Reilly by The Who? Well, let's listen to that intro and see if we can figure out what it is. So just listen to this without any knowledge of the specifics, my guess would have been this is a keyboard with some sort of an auto-repeat function turned on to some of the notes, so that when you hit a note, you get a second note really quickly afterward. Um, I looked it up, and that was pretty close. Uh, this is Pete Townsend's organ. It's a Lowry Berkshire Deluxe organ with a, an auto-repeat function turned on, so the notes repeat really quickly. couple other pieces of trivia that I did not know until I looked into this. Baba O'Reilly was originally written for a rock opera by Pete Townsend called Lifehouse. Also, the working title of it was Teenage Wasteland, which is what pretty much everybody calls Baba O'Reilly, because nobody would call the song where they sing Teenage Wasteland over and over again, Baba O'Reilly. So hey, the Who called it Teenage Wasteland as well. The next question comes from Steven about the song Memories by Thutmos from the Into the Spider-Verse movie soundtrack. He writes, I've been listening to that song on repeat for a few days, really letting it sink in. One thing I've been drawn to is the bass drum beat that's fairly consistent. It's a standard one, two, three, four, but I find that the end of the measure has me anticipating the next one. I know you've been practicing the drums lately. I was curious how pervasive this kind of beat is. I find my feet tapping along to the rhythm, even when I've stopped listening. Well, Steven, let's listen to a clip from that song. This is a clip from Memories by Thutmos from the incredible incredible soundtrack to the incredible movie Into the Spider-Verse. Memories It's gonna take some getting used to Memories Feel the pain when it hits you so this is definitely a very pervasive kind of beat that's out there right now. I hear it all over the place. The upshot is that what it's doing is it's giving you a really solid downbeat, but then they're introducing syncopation at the very end of the bar. So anytime you do that, if you give people a really steady downbeat and then introduce a couple of upbeats, it just kind of adds a bounce and a lift to the track that makes you, you know, tap your foot or um, or want to dance along with it. So Stephen, when you say that it's actually a really standard one, two, three, four, it isn't quite. And to illustrate that, I'm going to break out the desk drumming. We're going to do some desk drumming for the first time in a while and I'm going to do the kick drum on the desk and a little bit of clapping and snapping to illustrate the beat that Thutmose is using on this recording. Let's add some claps and snaps to that. So the kick drum is doing three downbeats, boom, 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 and the next two beats are slightly different. The way to hear this is to count sixteenth notes. Dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. And if you hear it that way, it's dig it, 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 which is very different than if it were all downbeats. That would sound a little more like this. So that's a more straightforward beat. It's just boom, boom, boom. Boom. But if you compare that to the version that's like the recording with those syncopated kicks at the very end of the measure, boom, 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 boom. It just adds a little bounce at the end of each measure that sort of carries you forward into the next one. 
So basically, by having three steady beats and then introducing syncopation on that fourth beat, it sort of trips you up and bounces you along and carries you into the next measure. This is something that's definitely taken from the Latin music tradition and sort of infused, in this case, into a sort of R&B hip-hop song. Um, there's, it's everywhere, this kind of beat and a couple of variations of it, just that like boom, boom, ba-boom, 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 ba, like that kind of a beat. And it makes you want to dance. It's a really good groove. And, um, you know, it works for a reason and it's popular for a reason. Our final and very relatable question comes from Brett, who asks, When I hear a new album, if I love it immediately and listen to it like crazy, I inevitably burn out on it. But if I'm iffy on the album, yet there's something that keeps pulling me back, I'll find myself liking and listening to it more and more as time goes on, and I'll eventually listen to it more than the album that I loved from the start. What's the deal with that? Well, Brett, you are definitely not alone in this. I'm sure that a lot of people listening have had this happen to them. I know that I've had it happen to me. Um, and I think it kind of relates to how music appeals to us and to, you know, what we get out of it in the end, which sort of sounds big, and I guess it is a big answer, but I think I can give it in a kind of a small way. So one of the most challenging albums that I've ever listened to is the Mars Volta's Deloused in the Comatorium. This is a super hard rock album from guys who used to be in this band at the drive-in. Um, and a friend of mine was like, you have to listen to this album. This is right after it came out and I went and bought it I bought it on CD this is giving you a sense of when, what time period this was and how old I am I bought it on CD put it on and we could not get into it at first it was weird um, the lead singer was like screaming really high notes everything was chaos I, I could not follow it I kind of listened and was like okay I can tell these guys are really good musicians I'm into the drumming it sounds okay but I kind of put it down then later I came back to it and listened to it again and heard more things the second time. And so I kind of just kept sticking with it and kept listening to it. And over time, I've come to think of it as one of my favorite albums ever. And it's an album where every time I listen to it, I hear something new. I know it inside and out. I know all the music. I love it to death. And I think that that's a fairly common experience. Now, I've definitely had the flip side of this experience as well, where I'll listen to an album, usually something that's very approachable and catchy. And I'll think, oh my God, I love this. This is so great. I'll listen to it obsessively for a week or two. It'll be my running playlist. And then I'll kind of quickly burn out on it and I'll move on to something else. Now, I think that what's going on here is sort of related to the concept of challenge as it relates to art. Now, in a previous life, I wrote about video games. So challenge was something that I thought about a lot. And I think that all art challenges us in some way or another. And that challenge can look like anything. You know, it can be challenging you in any of a thousand different ways. But it's the ones that challenge us, I think, that tend to stick with us. I've certainly found that to be true um, with me in music. There will be music that I just, I know there's something there, but I can't quite get it. I can't hear it. I can't figure it out. I can't kind of bring it, you know, under my control kind of. And as a result, I, I work at it and I stick with it. And that process is very rewarding because when you do that kind of work, that active, almost aggressive listening, it brings a song under your control, just in your mind in a way that I think can form a very powerful relationship with that piece of music. That's really actually something I'm trying to do with strong songs is to help people have that experience of like really bringing a song in and grabbing onto every part of it because I think that listening to music that way is a wonderful way to listen to music. Now some music comes to you a lot more for whatever reason you hear it and you just immediately get it and when you don't have that challenge uh, you don't necessarily challenge yourself you just put the song on you hear it you like it you listen to it a whole bunch of times and then you don't really have you don't have to do the work to form the relationship with the music. Another thing that I'm trying to do on this 
podcast is actually take some of those songs, you know, the pop songs that you've heard a hundred times, and then do the work on those songs too to kind of get under the hood and get underneath the, you know, immediately grabby melody or the hook or whatever it is that most people whistle when they whistle the song and do that deeper work where you're getting into the challenge of the song and picking apart those subtler layers that are underneath the surface because that'll also form a more kind of meaningful relationship between you and the song. So when I think back to how many songs and albums have challenged me over the course of my life and how many of those songs and albums are among my favorite songs and albums of all time, it's pretty striking and it's a good reminder to me to uh, give music more than one chance. When I hear something that either someone I trust told me is good or that I can tell there's something about it that's good, but it doesn't grab me immediately, it doesn't always have to. Sometimes you have to do the work and kind of go to the music and stick with it and figure out how it works and what it's doing. And then it's also a reminder to listen deeply to things that do grab you immediately because a song that you love and listen to a million times, you could really sit down and listen very carefully, you know, on that million and first time and you'll hear something new there as well. So it's really just a reminder to listen diligently and with attention and to really give care to your listening habits. That'll do it for our main mailbag spectacular. Thanks everyone who sent in a question and thanks to all of you for listening. Um, I'm really excited that so many new people have discovered the show this month and I'm very excited for what's next. This is the last Q&A episode for a while, but it's not the last one ever. So if you have any questions that you would like to send me, please send them to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or tweet them at me at Kirk Hamilton. That's K-I-R-K Hamilton. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into another strong song.